He's a wild creature. We can't ask him to be anything else. You were speaking Russian, Bob! Where is it? Sit down! Finish the job, son. Eliza, honey, he's coming for you. Hello and welcome to another in our series of Oscar podcast conversations. This is Glenn Kaiser with the Dolby Institute uh, here with the Soundworks Collection. And today we're focusing on the shape of water. Um, it's kind of an interesting afternoon. It's uh, Super Bowl Sunday here in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, we're in a hotel with uh, these amazing uh, 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 artists, all of whom, none of whom care about the Super Bowl at all because they're all Canadian. <laughs> it's, you mean so, it's, 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 it's the American Grey Cup. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so what, what yeah, who, who, who knows? So um, Shape of Water, uh, obviously nominated in both the sound editing and the sound mixing categories. So um, let's just go around and, I, so Glenn, let's start with you. Just introduce yourself and what was your role on the film? Yeah, I'm Glenn Goche. I was the production sound mixer. Chris Cook, I was the lead uh, re-recording mixer for with dialogue and music. Uh, Brad Zarn, I was the effects mixer. Nelson Ferreira, I was the supervising dialogue and ADR editor. Nathan Robitaille, and I was the sound designer and supervising sound editor. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for um, for coming in and, and making the time today to talk to us. Uh, Shape of Water, obviously, uh, just an amazing achievement. Um, 13 Oscar nominations and nominated in both categories. So I, I we put out on, on social media uh, kind of a, a call for questions um, and, and we got some good stuff back. But of course, one of the things that, that crops up is, uh, and this is sort of a, a perennial pain point for a lot of us, is we're like, why are there two Oscar categories for sound and what's the difference? So I'm going to pitch that to you guys. How do you explain or differentiate between kind of the two, the two categories for sound? Mm. Well... We, uh, it's Nelson, the uh, sound editor. We deliver the ingredients and these guys are the chefs, you know? I mean, that's that's what it is. And one is no more important than the other, but both are, you know, Equally important. Are, are, are crucial in terms of Absolutely. making something that tastes fantastic. Right? Yeah, yeah. They get the hot seat, we get the slow burn. That's right. Well <laughs> <laughs> put. Yeah. yeah. And then Glenn, obviously, you're on the set, so yes. you have a you have a very different kind of aspect and, and awareness of of this whole process. So, tell us a little bit about about the production process for Shape of Water and being on the set with Guillermo and and how that all all that went down. Well, you know, it's uh, as you know, it's, it's we 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 block a scene. I figure out how I'm going to record it. We watch the blocking discuss how it's going to be shot, and then I decide how I'm going to record it, radio mics, booms, or a combination of both, obviously. Um, and then it's a couple hours while we watch the lighting guys go to work, and then it's a few minutes of pure panic. <laughs> but uh, it, and it's go, go, go. But uh, it, it's the process of, of blocking and rehearsing and deciding what, what they want to do and how we want to shoot it that determines how I'm going to uh, do my job. Basically. So obviously with this film, it's set in 1962. It's a period piece. Um, was most of this uh, shot on stage or was there a lot of location work? Most of it was shot on stage. I, I, actually about 50-50. I think we did about six or seven weeks of stage work and then five weeks out. So. Do you have a preference for stage work versus uh, location work? Well, I always like stage work better. We have a little more control. Easier to get clean tracks. Easier to get clean tracks and, and you know, um, location work, uh, depending on, on where you shoot, it can be difficult depending on what, uh, you know, what control we have out there. Yeah. But um, even in, on, on the stage side of it, there was lots of business going on uh, because Guillermo is very visual. He wants... Uh, he wants steam, he wants water running, he wants all these visual things to come into play. So you're always dealing with that. Yeah. And now movies generally are made multi-camera, so you're dealing with wide and tights and, and, and that sort of business. So that we used a lot of radio mics on this show. And uh, a combination of radios and booms, as the dialogue editor will, can attest to. And uh, yeah, that's... So tell me about the challenges of obviously your two your two of your main characters in this in this film 
have no language. They're functionally mute. Uh, and, and obviously one of them, the, the creature is in a rubber suit. So what, was that a particularly noisy challenge on the set? or how The rubber suit was pretty quiet, actually. And, um, and actually, it, it, was, it was nice approaching a scene. I, I didn't have to worry about Sally's dialogue at all. <laughs> Uh, and and if you've seen the film, then you know Richard Jenkins. Whenever um, Sally uh, does her sign language, R Richard almost interprets what she's saying. So the audience gets the gist of what's what's going on pretty quickly. It's amazing how emotionally expressive those two characters are, considering really the fact are. they don't they don't use spoken language. I presume the sound design will come in at some point to to talk about that. But let's let's just follow this through for uh, kind of uh, for for a moment. So, Glenn, you're recording the sound on set, and are you? <clears throat> what are you providing to to editorial? Are you providing a, a, a are you mixing on the fly and providing a two track? I and give a mix? I give them a mix, a mono mix, and then uh, seven or eight channels of isolated tracks. However many microphones you're you're right. running on the set, and then all that material eventually finds its way to Nelson, right? right. And so I, I think you know th this podcast is kind of an interesting you know, mixture of, we have a lot of, we have a lot of, of professionals who, who listen to this, but we also have a lot of film students and a lot of just film aficionados. So for those who might not really necessarily understand, what does a dialogue editor do? And what, what, what's your, what's your role in kind of uh, play, uh, you know, piecing together the track for the film? I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. But, uh, <laughs> I find a lot of people don't really understand what dialogue editing means. Yeah, I mean, the, so in the picture, I mean, it starts in picture. I mean, they, they're using a mix down, basically, of what, what Glenn does. The best possible mics to be able to kind of sell their cut, right? And just make it just the, the sort of best common denominator of everything that, that Glenn has provided, right? Uh, I'll then take that and uh, basically the tracks, are the, his, Glenn's original tracks will all be conformed. So I'll have the split mics for everything. So if he's gone seven wide or eight wide or six wide, whatever it is, listen to everything, assess technically kind of what works, choose the best mics for whatever situation that it is, right, to kind of shape the dialogue for whatever whatever scene it is, right, whatever room we're in, whether it's, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, larger room, smaller room, whatever, right? And sometimes it's a combination of mics that'll work better, right? Sure. And uh, so we'll basically do that. Dialogue editor, well, someone in my position will, you know, make an assessment technically on what works, what doesn't work, if anything needs to be replaced, which was very rare in this movie. The, the pickup was outstanding in this movie. We did almost no technical ADR except for what we call just a write-off scenes, which, you know, rain machines, wind machines. I mean, we had to ADR an entire scene, a big finale with Michael Shannon um, and Michael Starbar because the... the uh, you couldn't even cut the scene because you couldn't hear the dialogue. You're talking about the scene where Michael Shan or, or Michael Stromberg gets shot at the end. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. So and we they couldn't even cut the picture gig. because yeah. you couldn't hear the dialogues. So we had to bring them in, re-record the dialogue, cut the picture. re-record the dialogue just so that they could present the film. That's how bad it sounded, right? And but and it's unavoidable, right? Outside of that, it was perfect pickup on the on, you know. You know, in, in certain situations, not on this film, but you'll listen for things like accent, sometimes performance. You'll make recommendations to the director. Look, that's not quite working. Maybe we should try and cover it just in case, right? And just basically generate an ADR list, haul the actors back in, beg them to redo their lines for whatever reason, sure. you know. And, you know, they're, they're very, very accommodating. They certainly were on this movie. They replace the lines. We cut them in and make it seamless, make it fit perfectly, like seamless with with the production dialogue that's already there. Present it to to Chris, who who just makes it skate. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 great. That's those, a, those rain scenes were was a massive amount of water being poured on the actors. Massive amount. It, it, it was. That terrible. you probably don't see it so much on the screen, but it was probably triple what would be in any other rain scene. Yeah. Well, isn't it because the the rains are such an important plot point? Like you know, you've spent the characters have spent you know the, the whole escape of the creature is time to when the rains are going to start. So you couldn't have kind of a half-assed rain. <laughs> no, <laughs> really, really. It wasn't going to be a mist. No. Yeah, <laughs> not a mist. Yeah, and I, I had it wasn't the, a misty day. I no. had the experience of working with Guillermo a couple of times up at Skywalker Sound, and he doesn't he doesn't do half-assed. No. No. No, 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 no. If it's in the script, he. He's got one he speed. He goes all out, man. He yeah. swings for the fences. He's got one speed. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about the process of working with picture editorial and, and then how did post-production go? At what point did you guys get involved uh, in the film? Early. 
yeah. early. Yeah, we got we 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 went in pretty early. Um, uh, it was months in advance of when we were actually scheduled to start post sound. Um, partially uh, due to the practicality of weather up in Canada, it gets cold, so we can't record cars. We can't record. There are some things that we can't record, so we're limited by the seasons up there a little bit more. Um, and so we needed access to vehicles so that we could go out and record those. Um, and we were, you know, lucky enough that the guys on set were able to give us access to those when they weren't on camera. Oh, so you guys actually started during the actual, yeah, while well, they were shooting. There would be off nights where, you know, <clears throat> they would nervously hand us a driver and a vehicle that needed to shoot the next day. The keys to the pristine Cadillac. Yeah, right? well, <laughs> we didn't get the pristine Cadillac. Is that? Glenn can fill you on that story a little bit better than I can. That, 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 that had an unfortunate incident. And so we got a, a, another Cadillac. Different. It wasn't the beautiful teal. Uh, but it was uh, it was the same model. Of Fortunately, the color doesn't really. Yeah, we, we didn't. We weren't recording sound. the color that night. <laughs> we, we, we we turned that down. Uh, but no, we uh, we they actually were able to you know help us coordinate the authentic vehicles for for the show. And did you have access to the van? Because that yeah, was a pretty that rare, thing was a nightmare, <laughs> rare vehicle that one. And we, why yeah, was, was the why was the van a nightmare? Uh, so this is Richard Jenkins' van yeah. that they that they smuggled. The little brown the, van. So yeah. I have a question for you guys. I've just been calling him the creature. Did you guys come up with a nickname no, for the him? Asset. Or well, the asset? Or the asset? The asset was the I affectionately <laughs> called him Arthur B. Fishman, but I didn't really share that with you guys. <laughs> no, but Cam, Cam and Guillermo. I mean, we Fishman. called him Fishman. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so the van is a was a panel van basically that they take Fishman out in, right? Yeah, it was an it was an old Econoline. It was right. an old Ford nineteen sixty two Econoline. Yeah, right. and I, I think. Uh, earlier than that, right? Because it's sure. already beaten up in the movie, which takes place. In well, yeah, Richard Jenkins together. probably wouldn't have a brand new he van. Wouldn't, yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, that wasn't fresh off the lot. Uh, and so, yeah, we had this. We had this uh, this panel van, and and I remember I remember talking to uh, the vehicle coordinator, and he was like, "Okay, but you know, we're gonna have we're gonna have one of our mechanics drive it." Because it takes a little bit of Fonzie to get it to start and stay running, you know what I mean? Like you kind of need to know what you're, you kind of need to know what you're doing. And so some of the some of the the time we spent out that night recording that car uh, was was a little bit of uh, you know mechanic love. That's that's great to, to get Can it up get and, started to yeah. get it up and purring again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but man, does it have a sound, eh? That thing's it's got it's got a very unique sound. The, the engine compartment is between the driver and passenger seats underneath. What? Uh, uh, like honestly, the engine compartment is between those two seats, and there's just like a single layer of sheet metal covering the engine. And there are holes. So, so we basically, were able you're, to get little, you're, you're sitting on top of the engine. Basically, there, yeah. Right? And we were able to get little like those little DPA lav mics inside the engine bay through the holes, and and you know like sort of amp that up by you know beefing up the the the, the exhaust recording. Well, yeah, and and, and obviously once they once they steal Fishman, they're Sort of not really driving around. They're not just puttering around. They're 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 gunning that. Oh yeah, thing. they 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 haul it out of the uh, out of the out of the, out of the lab out of the lab. The tire squeal of the van was a bit of a bone of contention during the mix. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. We got there. Yeah. We got there. Well, so how did you t t talk to me about the process of working with Guillermo and and you know from the from a sound design sound supervision standpoint. Um, when did you start playing stuff back for him? How did you know? How did you how did you go about presenting stuff to him? Well, uh, Sydney and Cam would turn over. Quick These are the picture editors. Yeah, the, so Sydney Sydney Walensky is the picture editor, and Cam is, is uh, the associate picture editor. Um, and Cam was kind of the uh, the sort of right hand man extension, sort of taking care of a lot of the sound. Uh, elements and then also making sure that I was getting deliveries uh, and so they would turn over a scene once it was cut and they were close to being settled on it um, and they would send that my way that's kind of how we got started with the 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 whole like establishment of the creatures um, vocabulary sure. uh, they sent over a scene I assembled a build of it with kind of like a, a hack together mix just so that they could hear it with some reverbs and things they weren't, you know, expected to listen with their mix ears on. Um, and and then I would just send it back to them as a file. And then I would go into the picture room, the, the, the picture suite, and they would bring that file into the Avid and we would just play through it and discuss. Um, and it was, it, it was a great way to work uh, in the beginning when we were sort of just establishing things. Once things were established, then we kind of need, needed to roll up our sleeves a little bit more. And that's when the process kind of switched to um, 
I, I, I have a mobile system that I was able to take into the picture edit suite and I could set it up in the next room so that they could be working on the cut. And then when they had a few minutes, they'd come out, come over to me, we'd play things. I would have a full library at our disposal. So if there was something that wasn't working for so you, So you moved over there and you were working on site? Uh, in a mobile context, not yeah. not long term. It would okay. be, you know, like, you know, I, I think, you know, I would call up and say, I think tomorrow's a good day for me to come in. I've got some stuff that, that'll work. Or I would get the request. Can he come in? Can he, you know, come in and present something? Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how we would work through it and hash through it. And uh, that process kind of helped us establish and expand on the creature's vocabulary. That was the biggest, most useful um, uh way that we were able to use that time. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, obviously listening to the, you know, the, the most obvious challenge is the creature, mm -hmm. Fishman. So Fishman. Uh, yeah, Fishman. Yeah. Arthur, Mr. Arthur B. Fishman. Mr. Fishman to you. Um, so what, you know, walk me through conceptually basically the sound design for Fishman, because I, you know, I had the, I had the experience of, um, I saw this film at Telluride at the, at the film festival there, which I think was the first that was the first North American. Yeah, was the it first was after, showing. It was after yeah, the Venice. Venice was first, and then Telluride. Right, yeah. right, and and I, I I was there for a Q and A with Guillermo after that first screening, and he um, well, first of all, he's he's a riot. He's so he's so <laughs> he's funny. To, he's, to, a, he's an eloquently <clears throat> spoken riot. <laughs> he was really great, but he talked so. I mean, it, it became clear that he had spent so much time and energy on the visual design of the creature and the sculpt and you know, like he sculpted the maquettes himself like he, he really got in with the with the production design team that was working on the creature and really w did it with him w was there a similar involvement for him with the sound of the creature because i can imagine that was must have been must have been equally important to him at, at first no uh, it evolved though i mean um, <clears throat> yeah at first there was a there was a lot of room to breathe you know like he it's in the script. We know what this guy's meant to be. He's not. He's not a monster. He's he's a creature. He's an entity, uh, and he's a romantic lead. And so that was all kind of like laid out in the first meeting. You know, he he touched on that, but he knew he didn't need to elaborate any more than the script already had. It would be a waste of time. You know, um, and so it was kind of just a blank slate. Um, for me personally, I knew that the audience would need to relate with this guy. He had to be a romantic lead. He had to be something that we can identify with. If, the love, can, if the love story doesn't work, there's no yeah, movie. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And so um, in order to sort of, you know, meet the audience in the middle, right, because you're asking a lot of the audience to, to get them to, to empathize with and be kind of on board with this, this beautiful relationship that develops between him and Eliza, um, Really, the best way to start was with human sounds, humanoid sounds. And, and so, like, you know, ultimately, I wanted him to sound um, unusual and without being alien. I didn't want him to sound inhuman. And so I started with my own voice and then added animal sweeteners to that, uh, some recordings to, um, to honor the gills, like the, the liquid rolling in his gills, because a lot of that is built into the script and the design and everything that you, that you sort of touched on in, in terms of how much work went into building this creature um and then we uh for a final pass brought guillermo in and he gave us a, a sort of breathing respiratory layer that sort of once all of that got in there and there a lot of massage went into that track um, wide track you know um you wound up with something that sounded like a humanoid a believable convincing you know inventive entity yeah. Yeah, a personality right Guillermo talked early on like from our first meeting about vocabulary and about uh, the conversation went very quickly from what voice artist are we going to get to voice the creature to Nathan providing tests using his own voice and the the riddle was solved right immediate approval immediate <laughs> no voice we had our voice artist oh interesting okay he's here yeah <laughs> right so did and you that, get into you got it you got it you got into sag because of that i, I wish <laughs> i did get credited guillermo and i were credited for the voice of the creature so but but there's partially guillermo's voice as well it is that's yeah. fascinating yeah and this is this is what i mean like when i when i say that like you know it, the process with him evolved i should say with them because it was with guillermo and with sydney and with cam you know what I mean? That process evolved over time from being just sort of like, let's 
throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. You know what I mean? Well, hey, it's stuck. Now let's work on it. Um, when, when I started bringing my system in to work with them uh, in person, um, that's when the vocabulary started to expand. You know, because like when you when you focus on a single scene, you can really deck out one scene and detail it out and make it sound pretty and add every little steam hiss and, you know, create reverbs. But then when it's time to do the whole movie, you kind of have to broad strokes it. Right. And so, you know, in the beginning, it was just like a one long pass of straight performance. And I played that for them and it was missing so much because it's a single layer. It's a single channel. Of a, of a creature that would ultimately become 64 tracks wide. You know what I mean? And so they, you know, I think that they got it though pretty quickly because the notes I was getting back was, okay, so in this scene, the emotion isn't quite what we were going for. You know, like when, when uh, Strickland comes in to torture him and Eliza runs behind the banks, at first I wasn't sure if he was angry you know, it was one of those rare situations. You're talking about the emotional state of the crew. Exactly. Of, of and so Fishman. like that, that yeah, Arthur's uh, emotional state. Yeah. I should probably stop saying that in case, <laughs> in case that's like rapidly against what Guillermo would want. Um, but yeah, in, 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 in mo almost every single case, I mean, you got to tip your hat to Doug Jones's physical performance of that creature. In a few... Doug Jones was I the was, actor he, in the rubber suit. He was suit in the, the rubber set. suit, yeah. Okay. And so, and, and he, I mean, he did it flawlessly. But there are some emotions that you can play physically that could be read one of two ways. And occasionally I would read it wrong. And so that was the use of that sort of first really vague, way too much leash zone where I could just be as creative as I wanted to be. The leash started getting pulled in once, you know, once we started playing that stuff back. He could, you know, Guillermo could help me like, no, this is really what we're going for here. I like this, you know, I don't like that. And so I could make those tweaks. And then it was all about sort of, okay, now how do we give him range? How do we give him new words, new expressions, new ways to convey and express himself so that we know where he's coming from? My, my experience of Guillermo on the mixing stage is he, he doesn't really, he doesn't waffle very much. He has a, he has an immediate reaction. You know, you know where, how he's going to feel about stuff. He's, yeah, he's just like, you know exactly what he wants. He lays out exactly what he wants. Like there was early on, I think it was in the temp mix when we were doing the one scene where the where they're hauling the creature in in the in the big uh, the cylinder the container, cylinder. and you know he's like, it's just not working. He's like, not working. I want you to go through every sound effect that makes up that sound one by one and name them. So it's like, okay, this is the first one. So it's a low end. All right, it's a low end thing. He's writing it down. So we go through like the whatever ten tracks that make up that thing. He's like, okay, I don't want to hear that one. I don't want to hear this one named that one. I don't want to hear that one. All right, so just mute him. Plays back. There we go. Now it's working. He's like, now bring up the name, the one that's named that. I want that one brought up. 60 Bs. 60 Bs. Yeah. 60 Bs. Yeah. And he goes, this one I want a four. Okay, there you go. All right, perfect. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah, and, I, and it, didn't, it, it, it wasn't posturing. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever worked with a director who understood your job more no, he's, than yeah. him. Like he he understands our jobs, yeah. you know. Yeah, he's, like what what we do. He doesn't just say he doesn't just describe the outcome and say I want it to sound like this. He says sometimes he talks you through it and says, look, do this to this and this to this in order to achieve this, right? Which well, he's an amazing craftsman. Well, that's yeah. just it. Yeah, yeah, he gets his hands dirty, man. Like really, you know. I mean, you're using, you're using the voice, right, for the creature. I mean, he as an artist. I mean, I'm sure he, he loved doing it. I'm sure he yeah. relished mm -hmm. relished it. I have a question for Post. How much do you reference the script when you're cutting a picture? Because in that particular script, there was all kinds of description in the in in the scene descriptions uh, about texture and tones and and uh, and whatnot. But when you're cutting a picture, when you you read the script and, and and refer to the script as you're going through, or do you just approach it from what you've given? Usually, for me, Nelson will probably refer to the script a lot more than I will all the time from a sound design perspective. Every, every hour. From a sound, yeah, from a sound design perspective, it's really more of um, a foundation. And so it depends. It's case by case. There are some where I'll go back to the script if I'm unsure about something. Um, there are others where I read it sort of once and really I just get the gist and, right. and, and roll forward with it. On this one, this was a get the gist and roll forward because, I mean, it was such an unusual script for me to read. Like, I, I, remember, I remember reading that script and just, you know, right away I've got... We, 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 it's it's a, a mute female lead against a completely sound design male lead. And so as a sound designer, 
you know, I was drooling. I was on a plane reading this, and I, I think I probably drooled. You know I mean? <laughs> and so I was very excited, but then I read on, and, and it became so much more than just that opportunity. It became such a special story that I, I feel like I, I just kind of connected with it then and, uh, and kind of formed my own opinions and ran with them. Because when I read a script, when I, before I start a movie, when I read a script, I'm looking at how many actors are in the scene, what's happening during the scene that could kill me. <laughs> what What's I'm going to have to deal with. And in that particular uh, script, there was plenty of stuff that uh, little nuances of what was going to take place during a scene and whatnot. So I was just curious. But the outcome in the cutting room, it's often different. And any filmmaker it will tell you that is right. that the film evolves in editorial and the intent that's in the script may take on a different life and a different shape through editorial. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are entire sections of the script that I, I, I was looking forward to seeing and they just didn't make the cut. Like when he attacks the duck brush. You know, right. That wasn't in the cut. In the, the turtle. End. Yeah. The turtle story? The turtle story. Yeah. I have didn't no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, oh, the is, <laughs> you never will. You don't, you don't need to. Oh, wait, yeah. the no, you, you, you could probably scenes. piece together yeah. the duck brush. That's the brush that Eliza sure. brushes her shoe. Well, when the creature leaves the bathroom to explore the world, he, he goes to the fridge, he attacks the duck brush thinking it's food, he does all these oh other my things. Gosh, how funny. And, and yeah. a lot of this stuff w was shot, and we never saw it in the cut. Tastes like cat. Tastes, Tastes like, like cat. <laughs> yeah. So the vocalizations of the creature are one important part, but also just the, just the, the, the breathing and the movement sounds. So how, what was, what were the, and so what were the, what was the approach to breathing and movement first? And then I've got another follow-up question about that. Uh, well, let's, let's look at movement first. So that started with a conversation with Sidney Walensky and he was, you know, pretty um, specific about what he was looking for. He wanted to feel weight. This had to be, you know, I don't know how tall with the suit Doug stands, but like Sidney's sort of, um, pitch for it was like this is a seven foot tall Amazonian river god. Right. He has to sound like that. Right. You know, um, there were frequent notes in the early stages where he has to sound wet. We're missing that wetness. He, we don't have that um, that moisture. You know what I mean? And on close ups, we needed to hear scales and things like that. And that all kind of gets kicked over to Foley. And so, you know, that was uh, one of the large parts of my job in sort of wrangling the creature's sound was collaborating with with the guys at Foley One. And who did the Foley on the picture? Uh, Steve Bain. Steve Bain and Pete Prasad uh, with Gina Wark. Um, and uh, I think they did a, a fantastic job because like the, the feet sound heavy. That sounds like a large man. Sounds mm -hmm. like a humanoid, you know, entity. Um, but the way the footfalls come in, they sound how they look. You know what I mean? Like he walks kind of crouched a little bit and, right. and very delicately. He's very intentional with where he places He's his deliberate, feet. deliberate, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it sounded that way. Um, I know for all of the movements, instead of a clothes pass, it was a ribs pass. They sure. had a couple of racks of wet ribs, wet, <laughs> wet, 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 I think beef ribs really? that, that, uh, that Steve was rubbing together to get his physical sounds. And like they did other things, they, they used like, um, I think like a wet chamois or something like that, or a wet face cloth with some old quarter inch tape in it to get the the gill movements to uh -huh. make them sound kind of scaly. There's a rubber lobster for some Rubber reason. lobster was part That's of the right. feet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that they have a rubber lobster at all, and they've probably been looking for a chance to use it for decades. And sure, along comes the water, water right? It off. <laughs> um, so that that addresses the the movement. The breathing was another thing, um, and, and and it needed to be. You know, it needed its own set of tracks. Literally, a whole bank of tracks was, was dedicated just to the breathing. Um, from my side of things, that was to honor the story points in the script where they talk about him having two separate breathing apparatuses. One that breathes water, one that breathes air. Because he can breathe, yeah, in both. He can get way. out of water and survive. He's pseudo-amphibious, but it's not indefinite. He can't stay out of water. And so it needed to sound like his lungs were draining. His, his gills were draining the longer he spent out of water. And you can hear that peril. And that was all just sort of meant to be uh, an homage to the, the, um, the, the, the sort of um, metaphor of love equals water, right? right? Because that's what it is. The longer he spends away from water, the more, the in, more in desperate he becomes. He the yeah. longer he spends away from love, 
the more desperate he becomes, right? And so like the two things kind of link together. And so we kind of had to have that liquid draining from his gills as he went or as he was out of the water. And so if you listen to just his breathing, you notice that it, he, he grows more and more wheezy. We start bringing in a lot more of Guillermo's breathing, the more in the more trouble he's in, you know, um, whereas when he's just kind of getting out of the water, he's social, he's chipper, he's kind of just, <laughs> you know. He's, he's putting the moves well, on Eliza. Yeah, I know. So I wanted to ask you about that because obviously, you know, when when Fishman is introduced, it's it's almost like a little bit more of a straight up horror thing. Like he, it's a scary. You know, we don't know is this a really dangerous thing. But obviously, at some point, pretty quickly, he there becomes a, a tender emotional attachment to Eliza. They're still separated through the glass, but they're still. You know, there's this emotional thing, and so did the des- did the sound design of the creature change and evolve over the course of the film as their emotional relationship changes? Very much, yeah. And, and that scene specifically, the first scene where where she apprehensively offers him an egg, not sure because they're both not sure who is this a monster or is this a creature. Right. Like, we don't know what he is, and there's a turning point in that scene, and that was very that that, that was meticulously rolled over so many times in the mix So that's stage. that specific scene. She's got a phonograph. She's playing a record. and then she I, puts, I'm talking about the previous scene. The oh, first before first that. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that scene, it, by the time we get to that scene, that and, and, and you talk about the evolution, the first scene, we wanted to introduce him as a potential threat, right? He's he, he pops out of the water. We don't know what this is. He stands up. He's a very growly, you know, the animal elements that we went to for that were more along the lines of like, you know, lions and things like this. Whereas by the time we get to the record player scene, we were reaching for things like cormorants and pretty sort of uh, oceanic birds, Mm -hmm. like egrets and things like that as the sweeteners to give him a bit more delicacy and curiosity than he had previously. And also just change the emotional tone, right? Yep. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. amazing. And so um, these guys are building, 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 coming up with this huge library material. And then when did when did they come to the mixing stage? Like how many temps were there, and what was the process of going through that? We had uh, like three we had three temps. Yeah, we started the first one I think March, and then a couple, then another month and a half later, yeah. and then a month yeah. between. There's supposed one. to be two, and then it turned into three. There's never two. Yeah, yeah exactly. Always. And then I think we started the finals for it in in July. Yeah. June or July. June or July, yeah. But we, we did roll there. the temps forward. We did yeah. Yeah. no no work yeah. was thrown away, at least not on the sound effect side of things. Yeah. Were you guys staying in Pro Tools the whole time or how were you yeah, able yeah. to? Yeah, yeah the whole okay. thing. Everything was in the, everything box, was in the yeah. box. They'd kick stuff back to us. We'd you know conform it, strip conform all the it, add layers. Stage. Like it started as sketches and then layers were added upon yeah. layers. Because the way as, Guillermo as wanted to work was it's like, you know, when we got to the second temp it was like we're not starting over. This is like we're this is this we're is yeah. We're we're, yeah. we're fine tuning. Yeah, like the so mixing, so yeah. they're temp mixes, they're temp ups, but but they're just we're Almost just fine tuning and getting you know. Yeah. He's like, okay, that that'll work this time, but on the next temp, I want I want that to be fleshed out even more and yeah. stuff like that. So they it was felt that. like a very rough sort of sample premix. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and they would we build on them. Yeah, and the mix was a joyous process because of it. Because except for the music. We knew what our target was. Yeah, like, the music we knew was what the it was only, supposed to yeah, sound like. Yeah, the music like. was the difference. We were, we were, I mean, I don't know, sixty percent of the way there, or yeah. maybe a little more by the time we got to the mixes because we. By knew the time you got the to the pre-dubs, was, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we knew what the movie was supposed to sound like. And you guys did the temps in five point one. Yeah, the yeah. whole movie was done in yeah everything five was done in five one. Right, right. So tell me a little bit about the music. Obviously, Alexander Desplat, uh, extraordinary composer, also nominated for an Academy Award for the yeah, right. for the film. So, uh, at what point did Alexander's track start to show up? Um, first day of the final. First, first day, first day of the final. We never heard anything. Hear anything. We heard until, nothing until the final. Until the, the first, fi- day, of the first day of the final. Which so. is uh, unfortunately all too all too often the way it yeah. works out. But so, what were you guys working with in terms of? Uh, was there a temp score? How did you get through the temp mixes? Uh, there was. They temp did a, Yeah, it was yeah, a temp originally, score. Originally, uh, Guillermo went after no temp score, but then eventually this, they started using things like the theater downstairs diegetically and, and like sound sources like Mr. Magoo on the TV, they would sort of riff off of that stuff. Um, and then they started adding other other things that yeah, most of would Most of that music was, it, it had to be what it was because like you saw, like they were living above a movie theater. So, so all that stuff is, all the source stuff 
was the same throughout from beginning to end. From and you knew what all that material was before that, that stuff had all gotten cleared. Yeah, so you knew so except, that except we got some better better versions of it, more cleaner versions of stuff which and all that. Sometimes which sometimes were we went back to the original. Yeah, because you know there were, most of these recordings were mono recordings and kind of not really hi-fi because they were you know 1940s 1930s movies so you know to spread those out for to five one and you know make them sound full was a lot of work for chris to do. yeah because the music is dipping around dialogue in some point so yeah you have to it was mixed for unride, another movie for dialogue in another music. movie well exactly <laughs> right. yeah yeah i had to say uh so I, I first saw the film at telluride but then i, I was at tiff as well and i, I was at the screening but I, and I want to say, was it in the Winter Garden it where was, the it was, where the, it was where the film, film was actually it, shot? We, we, were, we were so, so the, the audience had an amazing response yeah, yeah, to being yeah, in cool. the room with. Yeah, the, we, with we wanted yeah, yeah. Guillermo to actually just have Doug Jones standing there in the fish suit when they opened the doors. <laughs> right. So when the audience came in, but he didn't want to go for it. Yeah. It was like looking through one of those mirrors, or like in those elevators that have the two mirrors, because you're in the theater and you're seeing the theater. And it was yeah, very the, meta. Yeah, I've never had an experience like that, like with the audience, like you say, yeah. right? When when they yeah, the audience. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was super cool at the end of that screening how the two people who were sitting in the seats where the drip landed on the movie <laughs> right. watcher as well as where Eliza found the creature, uh, those two people got prizes at the end of the night oh. because they were sitting in the special seats and it was right. totally random, right? Like we just yeah, showed yeah, up yeah. and everyone sat down. That's great. And watched the TIFF premiere. Uh, but they rewarded a couple of people with some something pretty special. So talk to me a little bit about the sound design of of Eliza's apartment. We've touched on obviously it's it's over the movie theater, but there's to me there's just such a, a, a wondrous sense of magic in that in that set and that environment. And how did you approach that environment from a sound design perspective? Uh, her apartment specifically um, would have been. Well, mainly, mainly atmospheres from a sound design perspective. There was very little sound design that was put in there. Uh, and, I, and, and that's really more Chris's magic. Um, using the theater downstairs to, to, yeah, to sort of emphasize, because it was a lot of sound source. That's what we were talking about before, that sort of diegetic sound source used as score. Um, but the I think you'd be- Story of Ruth playing underneath, you know, yeah. from the movie theater downstairs. And just keeping that in the room you know, enveloping the characters with the music, letting letting letting, letting them, it breathe, I guess, with with the music, letting that material do the. But work, also, right? in some instances, we had to, we used it as like as score as well. Sure. Yeah. It wasn't just playing in the room. Yeah, the creature. Yeah, when the creature toward the cat. Yeah, all of a right. sudden, we raise, we raise, and it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of underscore there, right? Where it's you've got source music just playing as this score, but but still, it's mixed as a source, as, but it's. But yeah. it's playing like score, score and it's yeah. really And then the same thing in, 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 in uh, what's her name's, Octavia Spencer's house yeah. with Michael right. Shannon at the end, you know, that, that Actually, music, yeah, that tense music is, well. is from the TV show that, yeah. that her husband is watching. And, yeah. that and it's great. All became, yeah, yeah it's kind of just sort of raising the, the level of that and, and spreading it out a bit more as the as they tension just, as the tension that, yeah. just to create that tension yeah, yeah. but in the two of them. It definitely gives a bit of magic to that environment because you've got what was already kind of a magical soundtrack already built, right? And so just one single sound source could give so much to the scene, right? And so that's one of those that's one of those things I love about this movie. There's all these situations where very little went in to give you something that was um, very special. Like it's similar to the the silent shouting match, right? The sign language shouting match. You know, very little sound design <laughs> went in, but very decisive mixed decisions took place. It was very subtractive and selective, and what you wound up with was something that sounded emotionally dynamic, right? And also the way Dan Dan Lauston lit that scene, there were cracks in the floor, and yeah, he had yeah, subtle lighting coming up through the yeah. floor yeah. Uh, to give you that feel, that flicker, yeah. and that you were over a theater it was it was quite ingenious it was beautiful in fact it, it was it was the inspiration behind like i actually went and recorded a an antique uh, simplex 35 mil projector because we saw some early images and it was like well we have to honor that like that has to be honored and so but that's i'm always really curious about that because um you know when a director has a production designer 
build moments in that then you can use from sound design later on. Like that, having the flicker come up through the loose floor, that, that really opens up possibilities for sound design for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it didn't stop there. Like the, the cinematography was was part of all of that. Like just the way that the camera explores. Yeah, the there's world. so much movement in the camera. Yeah, that, you know, we were able to do yeah. some really amazing things with panning elements around with the characters and all that. That was kind you of really fun. feel immersed yeah. in a world, which makes it really um, kind of a, a pleasure to pepper in details yeah that you don't see but you you can feel them because they're and so then the uh, you know the the other main location i wanted to touch on was the is the lab which i I presume was built on a soundstage um but from a sound design perspective what how did you you know that's a that's a pretty big space and a very specific kind of but also you know building connotations of 1962 cold war like there's a very specific vernacular of kind of movies that were out of that era so how did you approach the sound design for the for the lab space with a sense of humor. Yeah, like really that's the only way to put it. And, and, and honestly, it's not even just my sense of humor. Uh, I have I had a, a team of rock stars working with me on the sort of specific in-background uh, sound effects editorial. Um, the guys I'm talking about are, are Tyler Woodham, Kevin Howard, and Dishan Naidu. And these, these three guys, um, they took on the lion's share of giving that space a, a personality like the 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 fun quirky strange almost like droid-ish beepy right. like beep, 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 kind of stuff that was going on out of the machines and things like that um yeah there was always something sort of fun there to kind of undermine the tension that this is a top secret government it, it, it was always a little bit it, you know i i you kind of had to laugh a little bit as you undercut the severity of this of this environment. You know, uh, I think one of my favorite things is those those golf carts, and we kind of gave them that like George Jetsony kind of yeah, space. You know, like those that kind of stuff that that silly uh, well, that whimsical, quirky, quirky humor, dysfunctional yeah. kind of. Uh, it followed the visuals, right? I mean, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. It was because it is a it's a it's a lighthearted movie at the same time. It's got it's 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 there's there's a lot of there's a lot of tonal shifts in the film that are, that's really interesting. It's a lighthearted way to deal with some heavy subject matter. Yeah, you know? like it's he yeah he pulled that off beautifully. Did you did in your for all of you in in your conversations with Guillermo conceptually about what he wanted. Did you look at other films? Was were there any influences? Were there things that he kind of kind of cited as as you know things to look at? No, I think he wanted it to be our own monster. He wanted to do his own thing. He wanted, yeah, he wanted to be. A, I mean, it was clearly an homage to so many things. Like he he, you've heard him reflect back on being six years old, watching the creature from the Black Lagoon, right. and wanting it to go well for the creature. You know sure. what I mean? And this was his opportunity to do that. So like you know, obviously there was a little bit of. Um, a little bit of love given to you know honoring that idea, but did that translate into like we want to go back and listen to the creature from the Black Lagoon and maybe emulate some elements? You, you were doing your own thing. Yeah, not not at all. Like he, they, there was never any sort of he, he didn't put us in a box. He sort of let us make the box ourselves. You know That's what I mean? That's great. Um, and yeah, that was that was inclutter, incredibly uh, refreshing. You know? Trusting. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he really put great. he put so much faith in us yeah. to to sort of you know help him come up with a the, the rough sketch you know what I mean and then once he had that man he he moves fast he ran he ran far and hard with it you know tell me about Guillermo on the final mixing stage was he and even during the pre-dubs was he there for the pre-dubs was he there what, no he, we, he would come there are certain directors who just come in for you know during the final for a playback and they give notes and they leave what, 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 what's was, his what's his style well, he was he was yeah he was in and out for for most of it. like we we would be alone for you know three days with and Sydney would would sort of lead the mix and then uh, we'd have uh, Guillermo he'd fly in or whatever like the guy was had a million things on the go at once so you know we'd have oh he's gonna be flying in for three days but he's got to be on a flight at five o'clock so we have to get you know and then we'd start the playback and. You know, he'd get notes and, and then, 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 then all of a sudden he would, turn, he would turn <laughs> to his assistant and go, can I get on the 8 p.m. now? And then yeah. we're like, okay, I guess we're here for longer. And then, you know, <laughs> uh, can you switch that to midnight? And we're like, oh, okay. Yeah. But he would sit there and we'd, we'd do all the fixes with him. And uh, then we'd go on to work on for another couple days and you could always tell when he was having fun oh yeah he was, yeah. He was great he was, he, was, he was great yeah throughout the hulk feet uh 
metaphor many times. Yeah. <laughs> he did what? You know, Through the, the uh, Hulk feet. The Hulk, feet. Hulk, Hulk running. Hulk, Hulk running. running. You know, if Hulk. you've never seen the scene from uh, what movie? Modern romance. Modern romance. romance. <laughs> Gotta check that out. That's right. I do remember that. That's a great, that's a great <laughs> reference. Would, that's a great yeah, reference. Would, uh, I think you saved the picture. I think yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, that came out a few times. And, uh, Anything else will take a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, uh, before we got started, uh, I put out a, a call on social media for some questions for you guys. And this was one that was interesting. It, uh, and I want to just kind of pitch this out there because I think, you know, we all tend to be so consumed with whatever the challenges are of the specific film that we're working on. But somebody wrote, have you noticed audio trends over the past decade uh, in your work and your peers' work, and have are, have there been stylistic changes in film soundtracks in the past ten or so years? I thought that was an interesting question. I think that there have been, and I want to say that they've kind of uh, happened concurrently, right? Like they, it depends on it depends on the the people building the track. You know, I'll I'll go and listen to someone's track, you know, several times, and I'll, I'll notice an evolution. But at the same time, another designer might be doing something that runs completely opposite to that like someone one one designer may may um really focus on making sure that the uh that the track is lush and that you hear everything whereas other sound designers will sort of um drill down into it more with their mixer and they'll make selective choices so that you know you hear one thing you know you might have a building collapsing over here but if they want you to hear this thing you know what I mean? Using and, the sound to kind of shape the attention, or focus yeah, to attention. really focus what you're intended to to look at. I think I've noticed those kinds of trends lately, like in in, in modern sound design. Um, people are, are are you know sound designers. I, to my ear, are starting to figure out how to guide your eye a little bit better using your ears. Mm-hmm. Um, Does that echo for you guys on the mixing stage? To a certain extent, so, yeah. I was going to say one thing I've noticed a lot more of is uh, a lot more quiet, like people starting to use quiet, quiet as I was opposed say to that. just blowing stuff, like always trying yeah. to swing for the fences. Yeah. You know, it's so much harder to mix something quiet than it is to throw everything at it. You know, it's to it's, be subtle. It's I been can a test to that. Yeah. yeah. Because, it, you know, it's, you know, the, the tracks from the location have to be pristine. You have to be able to, you know, Make it work. I was going to say that is that there, there there seems to be a move toward maybe more in terms of dynamics, but uh, maybe with the advent of more sort of experimental score as well. Mm-hmm. If you look at what those guys did with Dunkirk, which I think was right. fantastic work and kind of more even more of a blurring of sound design and music, less of a reliance maybe on traditional kind of dramatic orchestral movie score, mm. and uh, maybe something a little bit more. I'm a little bit more interesting. It's, I think you guys have nailed it. It's actually one of the things that's been coming up in these conversations more and more lately is the blurry line between sound design and score and uh, and dynamic range. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It seems like directors are much more willing to play with silence. The room for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Which is Big great. Cool. It just well, makes it it's a problem it caused during Star Wars where they had to actually put the uh, note We'll be on recording the with them in a couple of weeks and we'll, well, we'll definitely ask that question. Out. <laughs> where they had to actually put a notice up saying that there is that's the direction of the movie that they'd went to silence when the thing exploded because audiences were complaining. Silence is brave. Yeah. No, it exactly. It takes and, a lot of bravery to turn it down, man. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to ask you guys uh, just one 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 last question. Um, you know, to me, and we were Glenn and I were talking about this before the we started the podcast. All five films this year, truly amazing work. I think you know it's it's a it's a it's a wide open race. I think any any of these films could could walk away. Uh, it's, it's, but the work is just extraordinary this year. But I wanted to ask you guys: um, Were there any tracks that really uh, that maybe didn't get nominated this year that really impressed you guys? That that uh, that that you heard that kind of blew you away? I, I myself, I love the track on Get Out. I thought that was a great track. Yeah. Say the same thing. Yeah. 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 What, was, movie, it about, what was, was it about fun. the Get Out track that you responded to? Delicacy. Delicacy. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's just it they was, just pick their points, man. Like it was just it was loud as easy, and it wasn't always loud. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Really good track. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. 
I know, absolutely. <laughs> no, thank you guys. I mean, this is a, a this is a, this is a first first time nomination for all of you, right? Your yeah, first yeah, Oscar yeah. nominations. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are obviously you've come to Los Angeles. Tomorrow is a big day. It's the it's the nominees lunch, which uh, I've never been nominated for an Oscar myself. But my my friends who have been tell me like this is the most fun part of the process. We've heard you're, that because yeah. you're going to go to the I guess the what the Beverly Hilton oh, Hotel, yeah, right? Yeah. And basically everybody who's nominated for an Academy Award, actors all the way down to, you know, us lowly sound folk, you know, get to get to go in and have lunch together and they'll take a big class picture. And everybody says it's like the most fun because because everybody's still a winner. Right. You know, and, and everybody's relaxed and having a good time. And apparently oh, yeah. apparently the wine is very good and free flowing. <laughs> right. So you got that. Too. Oh, well, look forward to that. You got yeah. that. Yeah. Look, forward to. look forward to that. The red eye. Red eye flavor. And then you guys have to go back to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so before we leave, I just wanted to give you guys an opportunity. Obviously, there were a lot more folks that worked on this track uh, than just the, the five of you any any shout outs you want to give you've talked about uh, about quite a few people as we've but you guys obviously uh deluxe toronto was where you where you did the mix yeah, yeah. that's correct and our well we had a well you have to shout out phil 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 yeah. Hossick, phil Hossick, our, phil Hossick, our mix yeah. uh, our mix assistant so he was a yeah and i have to shout out to my team steve switzer and jason mcfarland my two boom men and uh sylvan arsenault and paul ghost paul did a lot of the rain stuff so he braved that, and uh, they were all terrific. I need to give a huge shout out to Jill Purdy, uh, who uh, not only worked on this film in our department, but was also uh, co-supervised uh, mother. Oh, co wow. Supervised that track with Craig Hennigan. With Craig Hennigan. Yeah, she's mm -hmm. no slouch, man. Like, yeah. like she could be... Yeah, because yeah. that was a that was a that's pretty, a damn good that track. It was, was a pretty impressive. That, oh, track actually, as well. yeah. I'll actually I should actually add that to get out is that that track is is amazing and so overlooked because of its subtractiveness. Yeah. Right. And uh, the house she was, was the house was a character in that film. She, totally, yeah. and she was instrumental on that track, right? And she's been. I mean, we've worked together for a long time, and she's just just a world class individual and editor. Well, for those of you who are listening, who are who are interested, we also did a, a podcast with uh, Craig Hennigan and Darren Aronofsky. I saw it, and yeah. which we we talked about that film quite a bit. So yeah, damn take a listen for that. And then I would love to just continue my shoutouts. I know I've mentioned I've mentioned Tyler Woodham, Deshen Naidu, and Kevin Howard. Uh, I would also love to add Alex Bullock, who took on a lot of the weaponry work and some of the preliminary water uh, water stuff for me. He helped out a lot uh, during the early stages of the temp. Um, yeah, and then and then you know it's 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 also worth giving a, a big shout out to um, Rob Hegedus. He was our music editor, along with Cam McLaughlin, who was yeah. the picture, the associate picture editor, but made a lot of the early stages pick, uh, sound editorial choices for music, and has been um, credited as a music editor on the film and brought along for the MPSE nomination that they got, uh, as well as Dustin Harris, uh, who was who was uh, sort of a third music editor. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, have fun tomorrow. Best of luck when you get to the Dolby Theater in, 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 a, in a few weeks for the, for the show. Uh, this is Glenn Kaiser from the Dolby Institute uh, talking with the uh, amazing team uh, nominated for both sound editing and sound mixing for Shape of Water. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks a lot. Appreciate Thanks. it, guys.